Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeff Gordon. Many of the biggest issues in world politics today, migration, environmental problems, economic crises, are not confined to individual nation states, but our political institutions are designed to exercise power on behalf of circumscribed groups within bounded territories without regard for the spillover uh, spillover effects that their decisions might have for neighboring states or the suffering that they might create for other people. Political movements of the right around the world have called for more stringent enforcement of borders in order to secure the identities of national groups and enforce their claims to ownership over territory and resources, while cosmopolitan political theorists and some strands of left-wing thought have called for doing away with borders and even nation-states altogether because they prevent affected parties from seeking redress or influencing policies that harm them. My guest today, Dr. Paulino Choe Espejo, argues that borders do serve valuable functions, but that we need to rethink their purposes and how they are governed. Dr. Ochoa Espejo is an associate professor of political science at Haverford College. She earned her doctorate from Johns Hopkins University in 2006 and has held positions at Notre Dame University, Yale University, and the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas in Mexico, which is where she is from. Thank you for joining me, Paulina. Hi, thank you. Uh, so, On Borders is your second solo authored book following the time of popular sovereignty in 2011. And in the interim, you've published articles and co-edited a book on, on populism. How did you begin this project and how does On Borders relate to your previous work? Well, yes, they are related. So thank you for that question. Um, I think there are two ways in which I got into thinking about borders. Um one of the reasons has to do with current affairs and the other one has to do with a theoretical problem. So the first one is that um, a lot of people think that we began to think about border walls when Donald Trump began to call for building the wall in his election campaign. But the truth is that the wall had already been an issue in politics and bilateral relations of Mexico and the United States for some time. I began to pay attention to it in 2006 when the Congress passed the Secure Fence Act, and it became obvious that there was an ideological link between having a border barrier and the idea of the foreigns, the um, illegal immigrants, and security and state security and also terrorism after 9-11. And all of this brew began to call my attention because he seemed to concentrate on the border wall. So I began to pay attention to to the wall and, and what it meant. The other thing that brought me to this has to do with um, the boundaries of the people, not the borders of the state, but the limits of that entity that we call the people in a democracy or the demos. And that has been the problem that has made me work and has 
got me going since I was writing my dissertation a long time ago. What I am interested in is this question. When we say that the people rule, who on earth uh, is the people? And this um, can be simply dismissed as an ideological question or a theoretical question that is not relevant to everyday politics, but as things that have to do with the border reminds us constantly, it is actually a question of practical politics when we think about who the people are in a democracy. So um, um, the theoretical problem in particular, and I will spend a little time talking about it because it's also at the core of On Borders, um, is that it is actually very, very difficult to decide who the people are. If, if you think about it for a second, when, when, when we think who votes, now we're about to have an election. Well, clearly um, those who are not citizens don't vote, but who gets to be a citizen? It's not obvious why some people get to be a citizen and others don't. And that's quite obvious among the immigrant population. Like many immigrants uh, are citizens and many of them aren't. And some of them have the right. So who should decide? Well, um, a lot of people simply assume that the state decides, but others think that it's a blatant injustice in, in many respects because there are a lot of people who live here and um, suffer in the state, if you will, and they should have a say if, if this is a democracy. But a lot of people agree. I, I think that that's at the core of democracy, that, that when a decision is disputed, the people should decide. But then you would see that we come into a problem because we would have to have a democratic decision about who gets to decide. And that leads to a vicious circle or a self-reference, a paradox of self-reference. So the, the people should decide who are the people. And, and that is just impossible to solve. You couldn't, if you wanted to ask the people, but it, it is the same self people that has to constitute itself, um, you can't get very far. And so that problem, which some people call the paradox of politics or the paradox of democracy, or I, in, in, in the time of popular sovereignty, I call it the indeterminacy of popular unification, um, is the problem that motivated me to go into the physical boundaries of the state. How do they connect? And so in, in theory, other people call it the boundary problem, and that is precisely what brought me to borders. So the boundary problem and the wall, it landed me directly in on borders. <laughs> right. And um, uh, I think that uh, the problem of the people is absolutely uh, a critical issue in um, underlying a lot of popular contestation or popular politics. I recently spoke to Theo Rio Francos about her uh, new book, Resource Radicals, uh, which is about the governance of mining in Ecuador. Um, and she talks about how, um, on the one hand, you had uh, uh, communities who stood to be affected by the environmental consequences of mining and to have their livelihoods changed. Um, and they uh, uh, asserted that they were the people who should be deciding over um, uh, 
environmental policies and the regulation of mining or whether mining was to be allowed altogether, whereas you had um, the elected government of the country as a whole saying that they represented the people because the people of the entire country had voted for this government and that they were therefore authorized to decide uh, who was able to do the mining under what kinds of regulations. Um, And so uh, very much uh, underlying this controversy was a question of who are the people that should be allowed to make this decision about whether to exploit these resources or not. So uh, 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 this question of who the people are and um, questions of scale and territory, uh, 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 who owns the land, um, are, are very much relevant to a wide range of issues, right? Right, indeed. I think that in at least in political theory, these discussions that one could describe, of course, the, one could simply describe them, that people will fight over this, who has the legitimacy to decide, and I think that it's clear. But in political theory, we want to know how could we make a state legitimate as well. So we don't only care about describing what are the different um, what are the different ways in which people fight over the definition of the people? But we also care about, could it be possible to have the right people? And, and that is very difficult because I think we could all find uh, examples of where people fight over this. And the fight is uh, often where politics gets made, uh, electoral politics and state politics and territorial fights at every level of scale. But we also want to figure out if if there is a right answer. I'm not saying that it's a right answer for every time, but perhaps what makes one more desirable than the other. And sometimes people just give up and, and they just say, well, because there is not a right configuration, maybe we shouldn't have borders at all, which is what you pointed at the beginning. But I think that borders do play an important role. Mm-hmm. Right. Um the real value of political theory, as you point out, is that it gives us a way of thinking about um, what are the grounds uh, on which we can decide which claims to rule are more legitimate or, or stronger than other claims. Um, it, so the book is divided into three parts in which you critique existing ways that political scientists and political theorists uh, uh, think or don't think, as the case may be, about territory and borders. Uh, and then you outline your own theory of of what a legitimate territory, uh, uh, what constitutes a legitimate territory or a legitimate set of borders. And then you apply your theory to immigration environmental regulation, um, starting with your existing uh, uh, your your analysis of the existing ways of thinking about um, legitimate territory and legitimate borders. Uh, what is the desert Island model that frames so much of modern political thought? I think that whether we realize it or not, most of us think about borders using a model a mental map, if you will. And I call it the desert Island model because it responds to a very intuitive idea. I think a lot of theorists use it, but also I think that a lot of people come up with an example when you, when you press them. So imagine that you are in the middle of the ocean, your sailboat, and 
you see a piece of land and you arrive there in this desert island in the Caribbean with a little palm tree. Imagine that. And there's nobody there. Nobody lives there. And you settle it with uh, the rest of the people who came with you in your boat. And you build a little settlement and you think, okay, well, this is, this is ours. This is mine and this is ours. This idea that once there's land that is not occupied and once you occupy it and use it, it, it is now yours. It's an intuitive um, for, for a whole lot of people, for us, and strong idea of what constitutes um, the origins of private property. And it's a very, very old idea. I'm not going to say that it's eternal, but we can find it in, in European history throughout the Middle Ages and probably goes back to Roman law. Um, what is interesting about this is that in Roman law, it was a private, it's an idea of private property. That is, private property is constituted by those who, who use it and occupy it. But for some reason, this became the dominant idea to think about public land, territory, which is not the same as private property, right? So when you have private property, you look to the state to give you a title. But who gave the state their title? Um, you think in terms of this occupation uh, and possession view, but it is not the same because when you have private property, you have one person occupying some space. But when you have territory, you have a lot of people and a lot of empty space. So in a way, even though it seems very intuitive at the beginning, it is not at all if you press a little bit. Uh, how did this idea of private property became a public thing? One person owning land became one nation owning territory. Um, but that idea is still, um, well, it's complex and it has a lot of problems. Because it presupposes that the land is like a plot of line or like a desert island. It's distinct. You can tell that it is there because it's not the ocean, right? That is not the case with territories, but that's how we imagine it. We imagine like a, a block of color in a map. We imagine it as being distinct. We also imagine it as being independent from other such distinct territories. You know, there are different blocks of land in the map. And, and we imagine them as being sovereign and they can be separated from others if need be. And we also imagine them as precisely like the desert island as being subject to ownership when it is occupied and used. Um, this is odd if you think about it because there are many things in life. There are many objects, many processes, many um, things that exist in nature that we don't own because they're not distinct, because they're not independent. You cannot hold them in your hand. And also because we don't think that it's right to own them. For example, nowadays, most people think that it's not right to own another person. Uh, some people think that it's not right to own um, animals as well, some kind of animals. And we don't think too much about this, but uh, there are some people who have proposed that maybe we can't, we shouldn't own territory but we still think of it in terms of private property. And so this is what I call the desert island model, where you have a nation that owns a particular piece of land that is distinct and independent and subject to ownership. 
Right. And um, uh, this abstracts away from uh, all the spillover effects that um, come from uh, owning and using a piece of territory uh, in the context of, as as we'll talk about later, for example, rivers uh, and other features of the landscape that cross national boundaries and serve as the basis of of agriculture and lifestyles on different sides of national borders um but there are huge controversies over um uh what one country's decision to for example build a dam on a river has uh, uh, what consequences that has for other countries right now uh in um uh, Ethiopia and Egypt are having uh, a, a controversy like that. Um, so these, uh, 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 there's the problem of spillover effects, but you also talk about how um, in the wake of World War One, the League of Nations tried to use uh, plebiscite, a, an election, to determine the boundaries of new European nation states emerging from the rubble of, of the empires that collapsed uh, over after the war. Um, uh, what problems did these plebiscites run into and what do they reveal about the deeper problems with the desert island model uh, version of the relationship between territory population and authority? Well, um, yes, the plebiscite is one of the best examples of what happens when people think in terms of the desert island model. But it is very, this is a very sticky idea. Um, even our vocabulary is is uh, full of it. If you think about it, would you use the spillover effect? If you think mm-hmm. of, that's you, when you have a container and and it gets full of water and then it spills over, right? So right. it is. Um, we think in those terms. It's very difficult to get rid of this idea. But what I find very surprising is that we actually have. In our daily life, we use other ideas to think about the state, and our activities are not of that kind. We cross borders all the time. We are plenty aware that there are communications across territories and um, among peoples, but we, when we get in theoretical mood, we immediately switch to the desert island model. So it was using this desert island model that, that um, the League of Nations and a lot of Democrats at the beginning of the 20th century began to think of how to make borders legitimate because, um, you know, borders gave everybody a lot of trouble after the First World War and before and after. But particularly then, there was a lot of violence associated with borders. And the idea was that if we have these containers and, and there should be one territory for one people that occupy it, then the best way to figure out where borders should go is to simply ask those people who are there, which container do you want to be in? And, and that would naturally give you the right border. And, and so the idea that you could simply ask those who are there where the borders go to solve the solution, uh, to find the solution of, of, of the proper boundaries of states, um, proved out to be <laughs> more difficult than that. So I, in the book, I follow this officer of the League of Nations, a, a very interesting woman called Sarah Wamba. I like it that it was uh, one of the first political scientists that worked on this, but it was also a woman. And she was uh, uh, one of the people that work organizing plebiscites and trying to understand them. And 
she describes what happened, for example, in 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 the plebiscite between the areas that Chile had conquered after the War of the Pacific in at the end of the 19th century. And, and there was supposed to be a referendum to figure out where those territories were going to go. And it was impossible to hold a referendum because it turns out that it depends on who you ask who determines who wins, right? And it, this happens with every plebiscite. But it is particularly obvious when it comes to territories because you have to define in advance what is the territory where you're going to ask people. And if you ask in an area that is small and populated by the newcomers, then you're going to get a different result than if you make it in an area that is that, for example, takes over the whole two countries that are fighting for territory. So who do you ask? It turns out that whomever determines what is the area of the plebiscite ends up determining the results. So there, there's a quip that, I mean, it has been attributed to uh, different people, but I don't know exactly who said it first, but it was said in the conquest of the colonization of the British Empire that the people cannot decide until somebody decides who are the people. And it is precisely that somebody who ends up making the important decision. Um, and so it turns out that plebiscites are not the best tool to determine. They, uh, they did work in, in a couple of occasions in Schleswig-Holstein, and uh, they did pacify territories in the east of Europe. But in general, they're just a way to try to give a veneer to legitim- of legitimacy, democratic legitimacy, to a decision that is taken somewhere else. Right. And so uh, uh, it runs headlong into this recursive problem, right, of, of uh, who are the people? How do you determine who are the people? Well, uh, eventually somebody makes a sovereign decision about who the people are, and they are likely not going to be uh, um, accountable to anyone themselves, uh, perhaps. Um, and uh, And so... Uh, at some point, you run out of seemingly democratic options for choosing who the people are going to be. Um, and uh, uh, a common trope in discussions of colonial legacies in Africa and the Middle East is that the arbitrary borders drawn by colonial powers have brought together peoples who don't share some sort of overarching national identity as opposed to the natural borders that presumably frame stable, that is to say, Western European countries. Um, I know I, as a teaching assistant for a development studies class, um, I had to teach this article and I kind of had to suspend my disbelief while I was doing it because I was thinking about, you know, uh, what I know about European history and all the fighting over territories and population exchanges and the messiness of establishing the borders that um, the people who who make this natural borders argument seem to take for granted nowadays. Um, what are some of the problematic assumptions underlying this uh, natural borders critique and what uh, how does this tie back to the desert island model? Well, if you remember, the thing about the desert island model is that it assumes that the territories are distinct and independent, but in fact, they aren't. So if instead of having very clear blocks of color in the map, you have actual territories where people and and 
geographic features blend into each other. Uh, what do you do? Well, we know that we can't resort to plebiscites because plebiscites turns, um, you know, generate this recurring problem of the boundary problem. So it turns out that a lot of people think that there is something underneath that is not a political decision, that we could resort to self-determination of peoples that are somehow naturally there. And, and that those people who are naturally there have a natural territory where they do belong. So a good way to think about it, and, and I actually have a lot of sympathy for the people who got divided by these borders, but uh, I can talk a little bit more about them in a second. If you think about the borders of Mexico and the United States, or the United States and Canada, they are easy to recognize because they were drawn with a, with a ruler, right? They're perfectly straight. You can see it in between uh, Arizona and Sonora, and, and you can see that in, in between, you know, especially in, in the western part of uh, the United States and Canada. And of course, those straight lines look, as I say in the book, they look like knife wounds, right? They cut through something that you know there are connections. There are connections on the ground between people who live there from maybe not time immemorial, but for a long time. And their communities are cut in two by these new jurisdictional lines. So um, the Tohono Dam, who live between um, United States and Mexico, have um, the territory, they have ceremonies, they have people who live on both sides. And there is this tendency, again, an intuition, to think, well, their communities, their borders are natural. And the borders of the state are artificial. However, it just takes a little bit of asking <laughs> to see that all borders are actually political. All borders are artificial. There are different political processes. Some of those processes have been just and some of them have been more unjust. They tend to be unjust because there's a lot of fighting when it comes to making borders. But they're all made by people who fight over things. They don't happen just uh, as, as mountains uh, occur in nature. Um, but this idea that territories somehow shape natural groups. It's a very old idea that was uh, born, but not as old as the desert island model, but it, they go hand in hand. And it, was, it became very, very important precisely in Europe when those fights were almost over. That is, when, when people have been fighting the borders, they said, well, these are the natural boundaries of France. You know, the, the Pyrenees, and the Alps, those are the natural boundaries of France. And it was a way to, to settle down, a, a myth to put down the fight over them. So um, this idea that there are natural territories that belong to well-defined cultural or ethnic groups, it's, it's, it's an ideology which would be simply all right if it were not so terribly pernicious because it also fosters xenophobia, and it fosters the desire to eliminate those who do not seem to belong to the natural boundaries of the people. 
And, and that is what concerns me, that every time the idea of the natural borders is put forward, somebody ends up dying uh, because they are not supposed to be the natural um, inhabitants of the territory in question. Um, so uh, you uh, have have launched all these criticisms of of the desert island model, and um, what what ties them together in some way is that the desert island model assumes that the conditions for stability and trust that make self government possible come from. Uh, membership in an identity group, right? Uh, a nation or an or an ethnic group. Uh, that these are the foundations for interpersonal trust and and uh, uh, intersubjective meaning that make self governance possible. But you argue in the second part of your book that these conditions can also come from simply residing in a place. Um, how does the shift? to a focus on place-based rights and responsibilities change the way that we think about the purpose of borders? Well, as I was saying before, this, this criticism of states, territories as containers is not new. I'm not the first one to say this. I think that a lot of people have noticed that there is a problem in thinking in terms of the desert island model. Um, and I think that a lot of people have seen that this might lead also to xenophobia. So in that, in that respect, my critique is not terribly original. What I do think that I bring forth in this book is that I don't think that criticizing solves the problem that we are dealing with. In fact, I think that sometimes criticizing makes the problem worse. Because if we think that all territories are illegitimate, which is where the critique takes us, then that means that all of the bad things associated with borders are not intrinsically wrong because there are not right territories, right? <laughs> so um, another way of seeing this is that a lot of people think that current borders are bad, but then does that mean that we have no borders at all? Um, it ends up when, when you press people and you say, so should we have no borders? They realize that borders, well, are useful for many things, at least of all because they protect us from a world state or world, or world empire. And then they have that very conservative uh, uh, reaction, right? So they say, well, borders are always illegitimate. Therefore, we should keep the ones we have <laughs> because all borders are illegitimate, but we need them. And so if, if, it's, if they're illegitimate, well, that's all we can do. Um, I actually think that we don't need this conservative recoil. We actually could do better. Uh, but the way to do better is to think, what is it that we need borders for? So we need them because they allow us to know who is the group that matters and what is the jurisdiction or the space that matters when we are doing politics. And, and so once we have defined a, a jurisdiction, we can see what is the group that should occupy it or inhabit. And, and we tend to think of groups, again, I think it's a habit of thought, in terms of identity. That is, who are we? Um, some identity groups are not very good. I mean, I can think of very 
bad families, right? That breed horrible right. conflict. You know, there's like, who are you? Yes, we are one of the Fernandez, and the Fernandez are a horrible family, right? Mm-hmm. So not all groups that are defined by identity are a good group. I'm interested in civic groups that are not defined by who the people are, but defined by what do people do when they are together. So those are the ones that I call defined by place. And um, if you think about this, think about urban life. There is a lot of stability of trust that comes from simply living together. You don't have to be a type of person. You just have to engage in certain practices that occur in a certain space. So um, I think a lot in terms of uh, neighbors, for example. So you have the kind of relation that a neighbor has to each other upstream and downstream so or we share the water and and we know that we have effects to one in, in one another and there's mutual defa- uh, dependence and so we use this relation and and we can build good relations that breed trust and cooperation now um if you were talking to moral philosophers they would say well those groups that are identity groups they generate obligations, and those are the ones that we care about. And that's why we care about identity groups, because they generate special obligations. So we all have obligations to all humanity, and, and we legalize those obligations in human rights, but we have a special obligations to, to smaller groups. So we have a special obligations to families, I said before. So, you know, I always have obligations to my mom. Um, but we also have a special obligations to other groups, intermediate groups like families and bigger families, but also nations, for example. And they want to focus on those. But are there other groups that generate special obligations? I think that now with the pandemic, I have a great example that I can use to say there are other special obligations. I have special obligations to people who are close to me because they are close to me. You, I shouldn't sneeze on them, right? right. <laughs> Simply because they're close, you know? And it's not, a, I have an obligation to this person uh, to distance, to keep the right distance because I'm close to them. It's not because they are members of my family. It is not because they're human beings. Of course, I have an obligation because they are human beings, but it is a special obligation because they happen to be close to me. And that is the special obligation that I want to focus on because it's a very strong one that we already have, we already use, and we can see how these relations uh, of trust with the people that are close to you as neighbors can provide the kind of stability and civic bonds that are necessary and perhaps sufficient to have a civic group. And then you don't need to develop that strong identity that um, everybody else tends to think that is necessary in order to have borders. So I'm thinking first in terms of jurisdictions that are, you know, partitions in space, and then the kind of relations that arise in those jurisdictions that create their own group. Um, So... To guide us in thinking about what jurisdictional boundaries would look like in an ideal world, you propose the watershed model. What is this model and how does it avoid the pitfalls of either trying to draw borders around identity groups or not having borders at all? Oh, well, 
The thing is that when I use these obligations to think of the kind of groups that we can create, uh, these groups are uh, in, in, a, in a way similar to the, to the peoples that I talked about at the beginning. They spill into each other. They, they blend into each other. They're, you, know, you could not simply separate them. It's clear if you notice that in, across the border of national states, you still have place-specific identity. Um, I'm sorry, place-specific obligations. So you can see that across the jurisdictional line that divides my neighborhood to the n- next neighborhood, well, we share the air and we share the water and we also share the streets and we share a lot of problems that have to do with noise and with all the things that come with living together. So these relations do not help us to decide where borders go because one could say that from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, there are all sorts of place-specific relations where everybody is connected to everybody else. So how can this help us to build a border? So I thought, well, ideally, we would use uh, a criterion that we would all recognize as an important criterion, but that it would be important for everybody locally. And that is hard because there are local cultures and you know there are specific practices that occur at the local level and it is hard to think of something that everybody would agree to but i thought that something that it is truly universal that everybody cares about and it is also local it's water and water management so i thought that if we use water as a proxy too of the density of relations that we have with our neighbors as I was saying before, I'm, I'm very fond of the metaphor of upstream and downstream, where it's obvious that we have effects of those downstream. And if we think in terms of um, the water that seeps through and the cycle of water, those downstream also have obligations to those upstream. Uh, we can think of water as a proxy of these dense relations that we have with one another. So I thought, well, in an ideal world, Instead of having a a world map where you have blocks of territory that are supposedly the homelands of different peoples, ideally we would have a world map where it is the dense relations of water management that cuts different areas. And so the map of the watershed can give us this kind of ideal Um, alternative to the desert island model. Here we have something where it's exactly the opposite of the distinct, independent, and subject to ownership. You have jurisdictions that are interrelated, that are interdependent, and when we think about water, nobody can keep it. I know that a lot of people do um, consider water to be private property, but it has become more and more obvious that everybody has um, a right to water, and this has become uh, enshrined as a, uh, as, as a human right, and that we have an obligation to share it. So it's not subject to private ownership. It's, uh, it's subject to, to sharing uh, as a common good. And so... I think that it is precisely this watershed model that could give us a way of 
uh, orienting ourselves in a, in a different ideal world where we are not trying to achieve desert islands that don't exist. We could be also thinking when we are solving border problems in terms of a watershed model that does not exist, but it doesn't exist just as much as desert islands don't exist. So it's just simply a model to orient our thought when we are having border problems. Um, so in the third part of the book, uh, you talk about how existing borders should be governed with this ideal of the, the watershed model um, and, and place-based rights and responsibilities in mind. Um, since we live in a world of already existing territorial states with well-defined borders, you wisely don't call for some ambitious plan to uh, redraw the world's borders or do away with them altogether. Instead, uh, as I see it, the goal of your project is to figure out a way to govern borders in a way that is sensitive to these um, uh, what I call uh, spillover effects or, or to uh, the ways in which territorial states are interconnected and interdependent on each other. Um, and the key to accomplishing this objective is to detach the right to control borders from other territorial rights. Uh, what is your case for unbundling the right to control borders from other territorial rights, such as the right to jurisdiction and the right to control natural resources? Well, when we're thinking about, okay, so the world is divided into different states, but how to justify those lines? So as I said before, a lot of think, people think that, you know, borders are simply not, <laughs> you know, they, they cannot be just or legitimate. Borders just happen to have come about. And once we have them, uh, we could legitimize them in terms of the good things that they do. Uh, and then in, in those terms, we could say that a country can have territorial rights. I think that this is the main way of thinking about territorial rights nowadays. They, they just happen to be states. Uh, they came about, you know, historically the way they came about. But if they do the right things, then, you know, governments can have the territorial rights. And if they have territorial rights, they also have other rights, rights to control the borders. They have rights to control um, natural resources. And they have other rights that are similar to the bundle of rights that a property owner has within, um, within a legal regime of private property, right? So if, if you own a piece of property, you, you can occupy it. And there are certain things that you cannot do when when you have private property. So, for example, you can deny the right of way to your neighbor um, because the state, <laughs> because it's the territory and the state determines what are the rights within your right, if you will. So, private property law has this idea of a bundle of rights within property ownership. And territorial rights scholars have been thinking about territorial rights in a similar way. You have a bundle of rights. And so some of the rights is the right of jurisdiction and another right is the right to do all of these other things that I mentioned. However, territorial rights scholars have uh, the tendency to think that if you have a right of jurisdiction, you have a right to everything else. 
and you have a right to jurisdiction usually when when you have a decent government that respects human rights or that it has a firm um, desire to keep on doing it in the future, or at least it looks like you have good intentions. So um, the problem that I see with this is that it's completely internal. If you think about it, um, it depends on the internal relations that a country has to the others. And it does not take into consideration that actually the world is in a, it's a system of states. And, and I, what I notice is that the right to control borders does not come from the internal capacity of the state to deliver justice. It comes from the just like from being recognized as, as a state within a world of states. So I separate the right of jurisdiction from the right to control your borders because that is a conventional right that comes from a different justification than the internal territorial right. So you can see this when uh, for example, you have a state that obviously lost its right to govern its own people because uh, of the horrible record of human rights or because they're completely incompetent. And yet we still think that a very, very incompetent uh, country uh, like, you know, that is falling apart, like Somalia in the, in the 90s or, or a country that is terribly um, unjust to its own people, like perhaps uh, you know the military regime of pinochet in in the late 70s we still think that the country is separate from the regime that governs it and the the state has a right to control its own borders that not simply that that the fact that you have a bad government does not give anybody the right to come in and take it as private property right and so the fact that we see that there are different justifications for borders makes me think that they're both different justifications and different rights. And the territorial right of jurisdiction is different from the territorial right of border control. And I want to concentrate on the territorial right of border control in the second part of the book. I don't think that it comes from the same source. Um, when people think about the functions of borders, they typically think about the ability to exclude people who do not belong in a given territory because they are not members of the group that owns that territory. People who make the case for allowing, uh, quote unquote, aliens, people who do not belong to the group to reside in a territory and even to have rights typically make the case by asserting that residency in a territory is a good proxy for a person's ties to the group that owns the territory that is their de facto membership in the group um for example through their uh uh friendships familial familial connections business connections employment etc um you agree that uh these aliens or outsiders should be allowed to reside in a territory but you make the case on the principle of place-based rights and responsibilities what are the, some of the shortcomings of the membership-based argument, and why is allowing non-citizens to participate in local government an obligation for citizens? Well, I mean, this derives from what I just mentioned before about separating territorial rights, because um, one of the reasons that um, people want to make a connection between rights of jurisdiction and the right to control your borders is that you can say, well, 
this is our country. We govern it well. And therefore, we have a right to determine who gets to come in and who gets to come out. So one of the implications of saying, well, uh, hold on, they are not the same right, is that maybe you don't have a right to determine who comes in and who comes out just because you govern justly, right? Because this is an international concern, not an internal concern. So you cannot simply say, well, this is ours. We have a right to keep people out. And, and this is something that you actually heard quite commonly in Mexico when um, the Americans began to build the wall. Because people said, well, we might not like it. It's unseemly and we think it's stupid, but it's in their territory and, you know, they can do whatever they want. It's theirs. Well, I'm thinking, well, maybe the, the border itself, it's not ours or yours. It's something we share. And because we share it, we have rights to them in both international and bilateral. And also, this is not sufficient, as we said before, because we can't legitimize it democratically and say that the people um, authorize the creation of the people. We can't appeal to democracy to say that we have a right to keep people out. So those justifications, I think, are too weak to just to, to motivate the idea of keeping people out. However, there may be good reasons for why we want to control populations. I think that a lot of the reasons that get given and lately, you know, things that have to do with uh, newcomers could destabilize our culture or they could um, dislocate the economy are actually disingenuous and, and they tend to go in the direction of xenophobia. Uh, or simply they're, they're meant to prop up a particular political project. But I do think that there could be genuine reasons for why uh, one a government or a group of people may want to keep others out. So um, some examples that get given, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not sure they're justified, but these are examples that get given. Well, maybe people who are buying property in... in in some areas, like in New Zealand, like uh, there's some limits to the kind of land that, that foreigners can buy. In, in Mexico, for many, many years, foreigners were not uh, allowed to buy beachfront uh, properties. Uh, so one could make these kind of uh, arguments in terms of um, place-specific rights and duties, I think. If we can't live together because there are not enough resources, Maybe that could be a reason to restrict immigration. But I don't actually think that those come up. In fact, when you have the obligations to each other, it turns out that uh, you can use them to justify giving rights to the people who live next to you. Because it turns out that it's better to govern when the people who live next to you also have rights to participate in, in the political community where people live together. So I, I use this idea of the place-specific duties that I mentioned before, like, um, you know, social distancing or, you know, making sure that you respect traffic laws, to actually say that those who are already living in a particular place probably have rights to stay in those places because they have obligations to the place and to the people that live close to them. 
Uh, I have a little bit, I mean, the argument that I give is a little bit more complicated in terms of, of moral obligations. But I think that it's enough to say that place-specific rights and, and duties can explain why people, migrants, for example, have a right to participate in, in the politics of the places where they live. Um, finally, how do place-specific duties in the watershed model change the way we think about natural resources, which, as we've discussed already, do not correspond to national boundaries in any straightforward way, how these resources should be managed. Um, you talk, uh, you use watershed model as a, a, a metaphor or, or an illustration, but you also use it to describe how the, the practical concerns of managing uh, these environmental resources that are indifferent to the borders uh, that humans draw. Um, so how, how does your model uh Shape, reshape the way we should think about environmental management? So one of the main reasons why I wanted to focus on place, it's because I think that environmental concerns should be front and center um, in our day and age. That That is one of the main things that um, a normative political theory should be focusing on. Uh, so I wanted to bring in the environment and some of the things that motivated me to write this um, had to do with the wall, but I had the intuition that the wall was not only wasteful and, and stupid, it actually was dividing ecosystems in a way that was wrong. Um, it turns out that we divide ecosystems all the times when, when we build dams or when we build highways, for example. So that couldn't be the only solution. It had to be something else. And my concern is that we we must work together in order to solve the problems and that we share um, the water and air and the rocks and they are part of what makes a community um, be a community where it's worth living in. So how do we make sure that we are sharing these ecosystems in a way that makes sense even when we have borders. So the watershed model, again, is just a metaphor. I, I'm not advocating for creating new borders that are go around watersheds. Um, again, it's, it's a metaphor just like the metaphor of the desert island. But I do think that we forget that we already cooperate a lot. That is, when in the literature on international relations and rivers, there was a a time where everybody was looking for how do we fight over water? And it turns out that we tend to cooperate a lot <laughs> over water. Most countries cooperate rather than fight for water. They have treaties and, and they have ways in which the water can be shared on both sides. So actually, I used the example of, of sharing water across borders to illustrate how there's a different motivation that can allow us to have better borders. So the United States and Mexico share the Rio Grande or the, um, the Rio Bravo, as we know it in, in Mexico. And um, we share it in a special, in a weird way, because the nations have two different treaties to divide the water from the Colorado River and, and the Rio Grande. But in both cases, we have a strong regime of sharing 
the water and the resources. And I think that if you study, as, as I do in that chapter, you can see that we have obligations upstream and downstream to the people that actually make the water um, by cultivating a particular way up in the mountains. And, and that this water comes down uh, and irrigates different territories and they integrate them across the watershed in a way that is actually more, more interesting when you look at the local institutions that determine how the water gets shared. So uh, as we are speaking, Mexico and the United States, again, have a problem that comes up every five years when um, the United States and Mexico have to deliver water in five-year periods. And we have had a lot of, uh, of dry spells in, in, in the last 25 years. And so at the end of the period, there usually comes a time of conflict where national governments will tend to have very strong words towards one another. But in the local level, in the institutions of water management, we actually see very interesting solutions proposed in the communities that are across the river and within those who actually share the water. And I think that if we focus on those institutions of water management, we focus on the way local communities think in terms of natural resources, we can orient our thinking in other types of conflict instead of thinking in terms of desert island model and the national community and the security of the nation, uh, but rather those who are actually sharing places and, uh, and problems and ways of doing things. Um, so uh, On Borders just came out this year. Um, and uh, you are currently on sabbatical, is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, the next project you're working on? Well, um, because this is about territories, legitimacy, and, and the rights of place, but it's really only about borders. When it came to thinking about the rights of border control and the other territorial rights, I just focused on the rights of border control, and I didn't go into detail of what would a watershed view of territorial legitimacy look like. So even though I spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about ecosystems and resilience and what would it mean to, to have legitimate territories according to the watershed model, I actually don't spend as much as I should thinking about where territorial rights come from. And, and so now I'm, I'm thinking about this, but not from the perspective of um, the Anglo-Saxon concerns, uh, which models territories um, in, in the shade of Locke and, and his idea of private property, but from other sources. And, and some of the sources that I'm particularly interested in have to do with the idea of communal ownership in villages because villages are places, and, and, so, and, and they're important all over the world. I know very well the example of Latin America and, and, and how this idea developed since the 16th century, uh, but I have this intuition that, that local uh, institutions that are grounded on 
communities um, that have to do with the small regimes of communal property have a lot to teach us. So um, as, as I'm working, I'm reading a lot of Eleanor Ostrom and, and governing the commons. And I'm also um, looking at, at the resistance that communities that had uh, a small land holdings um, had uh, like the, the frictions against the national state in, in creation. So I'm, I'm hoping that this will take me to uh, both something that is more like a typology of territorial rights and territorial orders, and also um, a way of thinking or orienting ourselves when we think about territorial um, rights and exploitation of natural resources and uh, how we explain or, or understand the rights of indigenous peoples in different parts of the world. They're different in every part because indigenous peoples are not one thing, but how, how should the state uh, stand vis-a-vis -vis those communities that were there before there was a state? And so that's what I'm working on now. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the work that uh, you publish that comes out of this research. Um, Paulina, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, On Borders is out. Um, which publisher uh, is it out from? It's Oxford University Press 2020. Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much. This has been uh, New Books in World Affairs. I'm Jeff Gordon. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you.